Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Recap. Coming up on the recap, a veteran Chicago City Council member is retiring. Chicago Alderman James Kappelman says he will step down after the end of his term next May. Former Alderman Patrick Daly-Thompson receives a prison sentence. Patrick Daly-Thompson leaving the federal courthouse surrounded by family and friends after the judge sentenced him to four months in federal prison for tax fraud and lying to bank regulators. Funerals begin for the victims of the Highland Park shooting. Services taking place today for Jacqueline Levy Sunheim for 88-year-old Stephen Strauss and for 78-year-old Nicholas Toledo Zaragoza. And police reveal new details about the suspect's guns. Police have said the assault-style rifle suspect Bobby Cremo III allegedly used in the Highland Park mass shooting was legally purchased, as were the other four guns Cremo apparently owned. Our panel today is Kim Belware, national and breaking news reporter for The Washington Post, WGN-TV news reporter Mike Lowe, and ProPublica reporter Mick Dumkey. They're here to break down those stories and more. The first funerals for victims of Monday's 4th of July shooting in North Suburban Highland Park are scheduled for today. Family and friends are gathering to honor Jacqueline Sundheim, Stephen Strauss, and Nicholas Toledo Zaragoza. Mike, can you tell us a little bit about them? Sure. And I think this is just from being out in Highland Park even yesterday. Many people think this is going to be the toughest day since the shooting itself because there's a finality to these memorial services and funerals where you're actually putting people in the ground and and saying goodbye. So services today are being held for 63-year-old Jacqueline Jackie Sundheim. She was a longtime congregant and staff member at the North Shore Congregation Israel in neighboring Glencoe. She helped teach preschool there. Uh, She was a fixture at local community events. And that memorial actually began uh, about an hour ago at 11 today. Uh, that will be followed by a shiva, the period of mourning uh, after the funeral in the Jewish tradition. Also today, 88-year-old grandfather Stephen Strauss will be memorialized in Evanston at the Reconstructionist Congregation. Strauss was a financial advisor who, even at his advanced age of 88, continued to take the metro downtown every day and go to work. Wow. His family said that he enjoyed going to the Art Institute often and the Chicago Symphony. And then there is 78-year-old great-grandfather and father of eight, Nicholas Toledo. His funeral is closed to the public. It'll be open only to family and close friends. That is taking place this evening at Iglesia Emanuel Church in Waukegan. He held dual citizenship in Mexico and the U.S. and had just moved to Highland Park. I was out there yesterday as two artists from Los Angeles had set up these altars with large pictures as a memorial and that has kind of become the place now where where the community is going to leave flowers notes say a prayer and in fact the Toledo family was there this morning to pay their respects at that memorial prior to the (sighs) five o'clock funeral tonight very very tough day I want to just make sure we honor the other four people who were were killed on Monday Uh, Irina and Kevin McCarthy were parents of that two-year-old boy who was found by bystanders 64-year-old mother of two, Catherine Goldstein, and 69-year-old grandfather, Eduardo Uvaldo, who's of uh, Waukegan. Who, by the way, if I can just add, sure. his his 70th birthday would have been today. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. 
I want to turn to talking about the suspect now, Kim. A Lake County judge denied him bail. Is that right? That's right. Bobby Cremo faced seven counts as a first-degree murder. They said there's a lot more charges forthcoming because charges are going to be tied not just to um, the fatalities, but also the injured, how many people were injured. You know, it's around 40 now, and there's a lot more that, uh, you know, could come. But for the biggest charges, those were announced earlier this week. That's what he has been held on. He was denied bail. And um, he's also had a switch up in his legal team. He had legal representation. And at the last minute, his lawyer conflicted out. And so now he's being represented by a public defender. Yeah, I saw him put out a tweet there sort of explaining the the conflict of interest. The bond hearing, that was made available through video, right? Yeah, it was a Zoom hearing. Um, He appeared separate in in a jail facility. He was just wearing all black. He wasn't wearing jail clothes. And He was mostly pretty emotionless, um, you know, a little bit of just kind of twitching, fidgeting. But for the most part, as the prosecutors read the charges and, and, you know, described the lives that were lost, uh, he was pretty expressionless. Hmm. What else do we know so far, Mike, about this 21-year-old shooter? Well, he came from a volatile family life. We know that police visited his home at least nine times in the four or five years between 2010 and 2014. Police at one point had to remove knives from his possession, calling him a clear and present danger. When he was 18, he reportedly attempted suicide. And it's not clear exactly where he lived either, whether it was Highwood or whether he shifted from his mother's home to his father's home, perhaps with his uncle. We're still trying to connect the dots there. But he was someone who recorded these violent music videos. I know that His motive may not be as important as the trauma he left behind, but that's still a question in people's minds. And there's been talk of, was this related to some far right-wing ideology that he had been involved with? There's logos on some of his videos. I think the Chicago Tribune has reported uh, that come from a far right-wing nationalist group in Finland. He was photographed by the Chicago Tribune at Trump rallies and Stop the Steal type rallies. So at this point, law enforcement is not commenting on the motive. If if he said there is one, we don't know it publicly. Right. But that's essentially what we know about him that appeared to be a very troubled young man. There was a trail there, some red flags. Indeed, red flags that were missed along the way. Mick, investigators are, are, are looking also into how he got these weapons in the first place, right? All, all five of them. What have we learned so far? Well, in short, so far, what's come out is that he got the weapons legally. There's no evidence, I don't think, that he acquired firearms in the underground marketplace or anything like that. And obviously, there's a lot of debate and discussion right now about no evidence, I don't think, that he acquired firearms in the underground marketplace or anything like that. And obviously, there's a lot of debate and discussion right now about um, should he have been able to acquire them. Obviously, looking back now, the answer is no. But the laws are written in such a way that in order to keep someone from getting a gun in Illinois, and of course, in other states, it's even looser, you have to have very specific reasons, basically, for blocking someone from getting a weapon or for taking them from someone once they've acquired them already. Yeah. You've covered local and federal gun policies over the years, Mick. How does Illinois compare uh, with the rest of the nation when it comes to gun laws? Well, like in everything else in politics right now, Illinois is a blue state surrounded primarily by uh, red states, and certainly that's the case 
on gun policy. And I would even go further and say that the Chicago area is a blue area surrounded by red areas within the state of Illinois. So, for example, you cannot acquire a firearm legally within the city of Chicago. There are literally no gun shops um, in the city of Chicago, yet we all know what happens regularly with gun violence in Chicago. So the weapons are obviously coming from somewhere else. Um, In this case, it sounds like He had two rifles in his possession, one that certainly was used in the shooting, and then another one, I believe, that law enforcement took from him subsequently. And uh, authorities have said both of those were purchased legally. Mm. Yet the suspect was still able to purchase five guns. And much has been made of, you know, Mike mentioned the incidents at his home. One in particular, he was a teenager uh, when the knives were taken away, and there's a lot of questions around why that didn't set up a process to keep him from getting a gun subsequently. And the short answer to that is that, again, in order to block someone, first of all, it's harder to block someone from acquiring a weapon than it is to take one Like once they actually have it. There there are more triggers in place. Maybe that's not the right word, but there are more mechanisms in place uh, that, you know, can initiate a process to to revoke someone's license or theoretically go after their guns. And so there was nothing on the books. He hadn't served as a patient in a mental institution. There was no documentation that he was a narcotics addict. He was not a convicted felon. So those are some of the three big things that would keep someone from getting a license and and then block them from buying a weapon. How are legally. folks in, in Highland Park reacting to all of this? This is a lot. Mike? Well, I can tell you, we I interviewed uh, yesterday a woman uh, who actually lives in Winnetka, but uh, says she has many friends all along the North Shore who is organizing something called March 4th, F-O-U-R-T-H, mm. to uh, use the kind of term for the 4th of July and then marching forward on the issue of gun control. And they are planning a march of angry moms to Washington next Wednesday. They've already got a couple of hundred people signed up. They're planning to meet with lawmakers there, and they say they're going to not stop screaming about this until something is done. And what they're calling for is a nationwide ban on assault weapons. Cook County has a ban on assault weapons, but their point is it needs to be nationwide to be effective because if you can, as we've been talking about, just go over the border to states with more lenient laws, it does nothing. And and the shooter's father, he's well-known in the community, right? He ran for mayor in 2019. I know Kim has done some reporting just on how he was perceived there, but he's the one who essentially vouched for the firearms ID card that his son was able to get and then obtain the weapon. He, again, was involved in several of these incidents that we mentioned already, domestic incidents for which the police were called to the home. And he, through his attorney, uh, I know the attorney has spoken on WGN saying that He doesn't believe he did anything wrong because we only know in retrospect what happened and that he he felt like this is what my son wants and I'm going to vouch for it. Any indication, Mick, that they'll bring charges against the father? I haven't heard that. I don't know what the charges would be. I mean, I don't know that there's any evidence. There's, There's none that I've read or come across that he willfully did something that would break the existing laws. I mean, again, to get a gun license here, it's not that hard. I mean, you're not a convicted felon. Um, The things I mentioned before, you haven't served time in a mental uh, facility, mental Mm -hmm. health facility. 
there's literally like no age limit on getting or restriction on getting gun. If you're under 21, a parent can sign for you, even if you're 12 years old. And, you know, you would have some people from communities where hunting is regular, a, a regular habit and hobby of people, a uh, sport for people that would say, well, yeah, that's part of the culture there. I mean, Kim and I, I'll uh, out Kim in the sense that we both grew up in Michigan and I don't know about you, Kim, but you know, I mean, there were a lot of hunters I went to high school with. And so, you know, the culture starts early with people having access to firearms for sport. So that's why the laws are written this way, you know, as some sort of a compromise between that culture and then, you know, in this, in the area of the city where they're is obviously a desire for more restrictions on weapons. Well, Kim, since you, you've been outed, I, I wanted to turn to you <laughs> next. We also learned this week that the suspect had planned on attacking uh, an event in Wisconsin. Yeah, that was one of the more chilling details that came out uh, in the day after the shooting. So we know immediately after the shooting, he blended into the crowd. He was dressed in women's clothing. He had obscured his very recognizable facial tattoos. So, you know, this very tight-knit community where a lot of people recognized him, and he's a pretty distinctive-looking guy, uh, you know, he could evade detection. He went to his mother's house. Uh, The family, the parents are estranged. It's a little unclear on exactly who lives where, but Mm -hmm. he was close enough to walk to his mother's house, borrow her car. He had uh, guns in that car, and he drove up to Wisconsin, and he ended up driving to Madison, and uh, investigators said, while he was in Madison and, and he was armed, he had the weapons in the car, he came across another 4th of July parade and he considered attacking that one, but he ultimately felt he hadn't done enough planning and preparation. So he dumped his cell phone and came back into Illinois and that's when he was picked up because there had been an alert on his vehicle. Uh. It is one of the aspects of this case that was so chilling. There were hours that passed before he was caught. Right. And you had this kind of slow motion paralysis going up and down the North Shore with beaches closed, parades being canceled, and not knowing if there were there were going to be more incidents. If someone was crazy enough to do this in the first place, mm-hmm. they would do anything. Mm-hmm. And and so this one just felt a little bit different, even though we now this is almost something we're yeah. we're accustomed to in this country, shamefully, but this yeah. one had had sort of a different feel precisely. One of the most heart-wrenching outcomes of this whole thing, the toddler that was left orphaned. Uh, fill us in briefly here, Mike. I know there's even a fund established. Uh, you know, to- a, a GoFundMe yeah. uh, page has been established for this uh, two-and-a-half-year-old who lost both of his parents. Uh, some $3 million has been raised by that fund already. This is just one of the most heartbreaking things you'll ever hear. The mother and father met at DePaul. They went to the parade with their only child, and the father died shielding the child. The mother was also killed. The child wandered away into the arms of a stranger. That woman was interviewed on ABC News, uh, and she said she could not answer the two-year-old's questions about, are mommy and daddy okay? When am I going to see them again? And she said she had to do what a parent does, is sometimes lie to your children. That child will forever be an orphan. Mm. He is in the loving care of his own grandparents who were also at the parade. But going so- through something Jeez. like that uh, so tragic. as a two-and-a-half-year-old, it's, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. Time to turn to city politics, folks. Uh, a judge sentenced former alderman Patrick Daly-Thompson to four months in prison. Thompson is the grandson of late Mayor Richard J. Daly, nephew of former Mayor Richard M. Daly, 
And his other uncle, William, was Obama's chief of staff. I want to play a little bit of what Daley Thompson's lawyer had to say. What's happened here is a grave miscarriage of justice brought on uh, by the overzealous prosecution. It is the smallest tax loss case brought in this district in the last 10 years, and it is uh, an absolute uh, unfair and unjust prosecution. Mick, remind us what the charges were. Sure. And that was, by the way, Chris Gare, Patrick Daly Thompson's attorney, who himself was a former federal prosecutor at one time and now a defense attorney. And I think he's essentially making the argument this case would have been nothing if the name Patrick Daly Thompson, the Daly in particular, weren't attached to it. So uh, the former alderman is uh, was convicted of basically lying on about his taxes, committing tax fraud. And this stems from a loan he got from a Bridgeport bank. This case, I think, was initiated because of amazing reporting at the Sun-Times by Tim Novak, Bob Hergath, and John Seidel. And it really got at this, uh, you know, the heart of this bank in Bridgeport that appeared to be dishing out loans to favored people, and there were lots of questions about his finances, and eventually it ensnared uh, Alderman Thompson as well. Yeah. How damaging is this, Kim, for the Daily Dynasty and legacy? Well, you know, the dailies have been a little uh, more low-key since the mayor has been out of office. Um, I don't really know who is around. This is more of a Mick question, I think, of, you know, who from that uh, political lineage might be, you know, making waves. Uh, You know, we know that Bill Daly unsuccessfully ran for mayor. He did. He ran (laughs) ran for mayor. He's he's dipped his toe in the water, run for governor a couple times, and never gone forward with it. And let's not forget that... um, Patrick Thompson's uncle, John Daly, is still a Cook County commissioner. I believe is the chair of the finance committee for Cook County. So, yeah. uh, you know, there are still family members very active in, yeah. in politics. But, and, well, and Mayor Richard M. Daly himself was just in the hospital for a couple of weeks. That's right. Um, and was just released and is said to be doing okay. But to think of someone who dominated life in the city so much, we really mm-hmm. haven't heard from him. And he appears to be in ailing health. Well, I was going to ask you, any surprises by Lori Lightfoot's reaction to the sentencing? She said in part, quote, what I hope doesn't get lost is this is a human being with a wife and children and a family who loves him. Whatever mistakes he's made, obviously he's paying a pretty severe price. What do you say to that, Mike? She almost owes some of her political rise to Da Mayor, capital D, capital M, <laughs> Richard M. Daly. Uh, she worked in his administration. True. And, uh, you know, I, I think that might be some of the sense of, like, don't kick him when he's down. She, she wants to stay in good standing with, with, the, Daily with the Dailies. Yeah. Uh, the Cook County Assessor's Office also made news this week, not for anything good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> tell us about the alleged corruption charges, Mike. It's uh, kind of like a classic Cook County corruption case of like greasing the palms. It's a lot of C's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Classic Cook that. County corruption. So an employee oh, in the boy. Cook County Assessor's Office was charged with federal crimes for essentially taking bribes to lower people's property taxes. The uh, person in question, his name is Ladvim Memizovsky. He was accused 
of taking jewelry. I was going to say, what kind of bribes? Tickets to sporting events, meals. So, like, literally, you're thinking in your head the caricature of, well, you know, I could lower your taxes if uh, you send me to Gibson's or if I go to that Genesis concert on your dime. (laughs) And it literally is that that kind of stuff. He even had, uh, according to the indictment, a $20,000 sprinkler system installed in his home in order for lowering uh, to lower someone else's taxes. Oh, so, boy. Uh, I will say this, though. Fritz Kagi, who is the head of the office now, issued a statement making it clear that ethics is his top priority, and yeah. all of these allegations happened prior to Fritz Kagi taking over the office. Yeah, and, the, you know, one other quick thing to note is that there are pending federal cases against Michael Madigan and Ed Burke, who many would argue, have done the same sort of thing on a far more sophisticated uh, scale in the sense that um, even though they were public officials, they were also working as tax attorneys to help people, you know, using their clout to help people knock down their property tax obligations for years. And yeah. and, and those are, you know, part of the, the cases against both of them. One more city council thing here before we move on to some other news. Uptown Alderman James Cabellman said he's not going to seek re-election. What reason did he give Mike? And I know he's joining a number of other aldermen who are also calling it quits. He didn't give much of a reason. He is leaving next spring after his third term. Mayor Lori Lightfoot called him the conscience of the city council, someone who's done social work and has kind of been a, a quiet presence, not one of the more vocal council members. He worked in Uptown and got into politics because he wanted to deal with the crime issue that he saw rising in Uptown and ended up being a fairly effective alderman at getting some infrastructure improvements, bus stations, those sorts of things yeah. uh, in his ward. But, you know, I, I did not cover this story specifically. I know Mick has has covered uh, the alderman in the past, but when he was asked for comment, he declined to say why, mm. in fact, he was leaving. So Interesting. Uh, it's it's unclear, but there could be a number of new aldermen uh, in in the not too distant a lot future. of a lot of empty spots coming up. Folks running for mayor, folks you know running for Congress, going to the uh, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's a some, it's a hard job. Charged. I mean, yeah. if you're doing time. it right, it's always a hard job. But it's a really hard job right now. The council is very divided. Uh, the yeah. mayor, you know, still has the power that mayors have in Chicago, but is very unpopular with the public. And yet, there hasn't really been an opposition that has coalesced enough to yeah. to do anything. They can stop her in certain things, but hasn't really been able to be proactive. So I think I've heard it's just a lot of people are really frustrated. They just don't feel like they can get that much done. Yeah. All right, rapid fire. Let's go through some, some final stories here. Kim, I'm looking at you because I want to turn to the far northwest side, uh, the Jefferson Park neighborhood. Uh, a man was charged with a hate crime after tagging businesses with swastikas. Yeah, um, this man, Brody Blakesley, tagged a local business um, to owners of color and people he had a connection with at some point. But this is something that on the far northwest side, uh, they've had some incidents like this nationwide. There's been a rise in anti-Semitic incidents, but also in this neighborhood in particular. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think any reports of this are definitely going to rankle locals. But, um, you know, had $200,000 bond, um, you know, had some anti-Black Lives Matter uh, sentiment that he had expressed and, you know, had kind of a good relationship with yeah. this uh, this local owner. And then, you know, it sort of soured and, uh, you know, ultimately 
would that led him to, you know, maybe not the the personal dynamic, but, you know, what he was actually charged with was, uh, you know, leaving a swastika and um, language that related to uh, the Aryan nation. Um, this man had formerly been in prison and had uh, known prison ties with uh, white supremacy groups. Hmm. Quickly, Mick, you had uh, an investigation that you just wrapped up on uh, Illinois billionaire Ken Griffin, right? Uh, his candidates in last week's primary we know, didn't fare so well. <laughs> right. uh, other political campaigns that he invested in did work. Briefly tell us what happened there. Sure. Uh, people in Illinois will recall, or you know, if you care to, that two years ago there was a ballot initiative. Essentially, you were asked, voters who were asked to weigh in on whether the state should move to a graduated income tax in which rich people pay a higher income tax rate than low-income people. Ken Griffin poured about $54 million of his own money into the campaign to stop the graduated income tax. Our story found, based on some tax records that uh, ProPublica has acquired, that Ken Griffin recovered that investment very quickly. I mean, even though $54 million is a big chunk of cash, right. we found that he would have saved on average about, that he did save on average about $51 million in taxes Incredible. a year. So he very quickly recovered his investment. Incredible. Okay, leave us with this, Mike. Our colleagues over at Crane Chicago Business reported that the city's considering a major renovation to Soldier Field. What's the very latest on that? The very latest is the Bears have said that the only new stadium they are considering playing in is in Arlington Heights. They've signed a purchase agreement to take over the old Arlington International Racetrack. Uh, This would allow the Bears to generate their own revenue, own their own stadium, and it doesn't look like any Hail Mary pass to reimagine the lakefront campus, put a dome on Soldier Field. It doesn't look like anything is going to stop that. Well, you said racetrack. I I, got to squeeze this one in. You know, if a dome over Soldier Field isn't shocking enough... There's another sports story out there. The Athletic website's reporting that city officials are interested in hosting a NASCAR race on the, the streets of Chicago. Really an eyebrow-raising story, but apparently this is something NASCAR has Get had. Get us up to speed, Mike. <laughs> Sorry. I Very to... good segue. <laughs> uh, they are apparently looking at the idea of urban race like this, and with Chicago's amazing vistas, whether it's on Lakeshore Drive, through the city somehow. Uh, They're thinking this could be something that would be kind of a made-for-TV event. We don't know what the route would be. It's not a done deal, but The Athletic is reporting there's some sort of preliminary agreement. What I think is cool about this is if they do it, and it sounds really dangerous. It's wacky. It's wacky. But people say Lower Wacker Drive is already a racetrack, right? (laughs) Um, But uh, the the thing that's cool about this is Michael Jordan is the only African-American owner of a NASCAR team, this would give Michael Jordan one more chance to well, compete in the city of Chicago. With these potholes, though? I mean, can you oh, imagine? Oh, my God. Don't get me started. That's it for the weekly news recap. We've been speaking with Kim Belware of The Washington Post, Mike Lowe, who's a reporter for WGN-TV News, and Mick Dumkey of ProPublica. Thank you, guys. That's it for today's Reset. Stick with this podcast for the week's other top stories. We drop a new episode every weekday afternoon and sometimes on the weekends, too. Plus, you can now watch the Weekly News Recap on the WBEZ Facebook and YouTube pages. Go check it out. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thank you so much for spending your time with us and have a great weekend. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.